Well, take your copy of God's Word with me and open up to the first book of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, will be in chapter 3 this morning, and we'll read just a verse here in a moment. We'll spend most of our morning in the book of Hebrews, but I'll have you turn there a little later. And I'll begin with some comments on Christmas. After all, it's, it's December. There are some times when it's a little too early to talk about Christmas. If you start playing Christmas songs, you might get in trouble with even your better friends. But December is a great time to talk about Christmas at church. You know, we talk about the resurrection and the coming of Jesus every week. The incarnation isn't just a December thing. Oh, it can't be. But our culture has made this a holiday, and I see no reason why not to jump in with it. Usually we go through books of the Bible, and if the part of the Bible that we're in lends itself easily enough, I'd like us to just stay in it. But the Gospel of Mark was going to have us right at some of the gnarliest parts of Jesus' passion and crucifixion. So we're going to take some time out of the book of Mark and explore a series we're titling, You Are the Christ. Now on Christmas, there are all kinds of takes on Christmas, even if it's a celebrated holiday culturally, generally speaking. There's the secular take we might say, and, and in that take, Christmas is a naughty thing. It represents Christianity and what it brings to the world, and, and that's an unseemly and an unkind contribution and you may have friends, and you may be even a person who isn't real big on Christmas and isn't really big on Christianity, but you come to church, and you've come to church for maybe other reasons. But for some, Christianity is naughty. It's trouble. It's a problem. It's to be, it's to be put out. For others, we might call this the spiritual take on Christmas. Christmas in the spiritual take is nice. Christmas is nice. And uh, not to divide our own state so neatly like this, because people in states don't divide so neatly, but, you know, in red states, that would be Joel Osteen, and in the blue states, that might be Oprah. There are all kinds of people out there of all kinds of colors and shades and persuasions for whom Christmas is a spiritually positive thing that contributes in a, a positive way. It's a holiday along with Jesus that you can set aside all kinds of other positive messages for the world and for, for life. Well, we mean to have a, a scriptural take on the incarnation, a scriptural take on Christmas. And it's more than sentimental or, or merely spiritual for us, but it's it's a matter of detailed care and faith and confession. And it refers to the deepest things about us. In a manger, in the little scene of a nativity you might have seen even driving into church, maybe it was in your own lawn, we have ourselves a complete world picture. That's what we believe from the Bible. There in the manger, as we reflect on what's happening there and why it's happening and what is intended by it, we have an answer to the question of where we came from. We have an answer to the question of what's wrong with us. We have an answer to the question of where we might find hope in the midst of our greatest problems and troubles. There in that manger, we find a complete 
world picture. So what's your take on Christmas? What's your take on that baby in the stall? What's your take on all this Christmas stuff and this Christmas story? Well, today we begin a series that we'll seek to answer in in some very detailed and deep and hopefully profoundly simple and meaningful ways. Answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus put to his disciples the question, who do you say that I am? And around Jesus in his day, there were all kinds of answers and his disciples had a catalog of answers people offered. And he put to his disciples And he puts to you this morning, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And as we've said, Peter was just right and didn't understand the full extent of what he meant. Which means that Peter could confess to Jesus' face, you are the Christ and be right. And Jesus could still call him Satan and tell him to get behind me. Because Peter didn't fully understand all that it meant that Jesus was the Christ. Well, maybe that's the case for you, not that Jesus is calling you Satan, but that maybe you have part of Jesus' right, but you don't have all of Jesus' right. Well, we have to get all of Jesus' right to know him. And that doesn't mean knowing everything we'll ever know about him, but it does mean knowing some very simple and profound and basic things about him. And over the next week, we'll explore them all. Today, we turn to the humanity of Jesus with a sermon titled, Jesus, Son of the Woman. And we begin with Genesis three fifteen. Let me read this simple and profound promise that will anchor this morning's message. The Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring And her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's word for us today. Well, this little promise here comes to us in the third chapter of the Bible. In the first chapter of the Bible, we have seven days of creation, six days of creation, seventh at the beginning of chapter two. We have the days of creation where God makes everything and he makes everything good and he makes humanity in his image and it is very good. In the second chapter of the Bible, we have a zoom in on the day when he created humanity and we have some beautiful detail about God's care and provision and meticulous love for his image bearers, man and woman, named as we know them, Adam and Eve. And he put them in the garden and he gave them everything there good to eat. And he gave them his word and he gave them himself, his very presence as he walked among them. And in chapter three, we see things go south, or shall we say, we see them go east for that is where they are sent by the end of the chapter, outside the garden and away from the presence of God. You see a serpent snuck into the garden not outside God's notice, but snuck up to and into the ears and the imaginations of Adam and of Eve, the man and the woman, and suggested to them that God was not good, that what he said concerning eating of the tree of life was not true, that they would not die. He appealed to them with this idea that they could be like God and how great would that be? Would that be? And Eve took and her husband ate with her. And just as God promised, on the day they eat of that tree, they will surely die. So death entered the world. 
It's a sad story. It's where the Bible begins. And God comes looking for his human creatures, his image bearers, and they're hiding from him and hiding from one another. It's not as it was supposed to be. And that's really the world we live in today. A world characterized by alienation and isolation and trouble of various kinds. And all of that goes back to a troubled relationship with our maker himself. And it all began, we get all of that, from the first three chapters of the Bible. And God comes with a curse. He curses the ground, work is hard. He curses childbearing, that's hard. I don't know that firsthand, but I hear that it is. He curses the relationship even between men and women so that they will have trouble even though we are to seek marriage in normal circumstances and be blessed by it. But there's a curse on the serpent as well, and that's what we just read. And overhearing God's curse on the serpent, we actually have a promise for us. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we have God's big promise for our big problem. God's big promise for our big problem. Some problems in life are easy. They are simple enough. Our kids are homeschooling these days, and if a pencil breaks at the homeschooling table, there is another pencil. That is a problem of sorts, but there is an easy solution, and it is within, it is within reach. But sometimes our problems are more complicated than they at first seem. And even little instances of things like that can betray deeper and more complicated problems in your own life and in ours. For example, maybe you break your pencil again. And maybe you break it again. And maybe there's something wrong with the pencil. Or maybe there's something wrong with you. Your writing is the problem. And the way that you're, that you're writing Maybe you're angry about doing math. I'm sorry about that. You may have to keep doing math, even if that's understandable. Maybe you're tired and you're easily provoked by the sound of your brother or your sister eating chips. Maybe you're provoked by your brother or your sister who is giving you trouble and there's a relationship dynamic that's going on there. Maybe you haven't gotten enough sleep and you need to get sleep. Maybe there's a reason for that and it's medically related and you need to be checked out in some way. Maybe there are some things that are on your mind. There could be all kinds of reasons why a pencil snaps at the homeschool table. In other words, sometimes problems are simple and sometimes they're a lot more complicated. There are more layers to those problems. So what is our deepest problem as humans? What does everything go back to? When you boil it all down, what is our biggest problem? And scripture teaches us that our biggest problem is the problem of sin. And that is not the only word, but a main word that is given to what happened there in Genesis chapter three before, before this string of curses, including this one, was given to us. And because of our sin, we deal with all kinds of effects that we say around here at Heritage from the scriptures. We deal with alienation between us and God, between one another, even in our most intimate relationships in marriage, there can be alienation. We deal with the corruption of sin. Our own desires and thoughts and actions and attitudes are corrupt. 
All that goes back to Adam and his sin. And we're also guilty because of sin, which means that we are looking forward to, even if we aren't looking forward to it, death, the end of our lives in the grave. And after death, because of our guilt, we're looking forward to, even though we're not looking forward to it, judgment and of condemnation and a final reckoning for these wicked thoughts and deeds that we've committed. Well, what is God's big solution for that big problem? Well, God's big solution is right here. Now, it's not very big on the page. And you could even just read by it and not realize that it was there. But I'd suggest to you that these words here, these four little lines in one verse, are big like an acorn is big. So you've got an acorn. In fact, I, it occurs to me now, I saw some little acorns buried underneath my windshield wiper. And I pulled some leaves out the other day and there were a couple acorns there and I'll leave them. They may be there a very long time. I couldn't quite get my finger down there. In any case, acorns. That little acorn, you could stick that thing in the ground with the right weather and leave it alone. You can get a whole, you can get a whole oak tree or a tree of whatever kind it is. And you add years and years and generations and you could have a very large tree and you could have a whole forest of trees from that little acorn. Well, that's not so much unlike what this verse is right here. The Bible fits together. It's one story and God is planting seeds, if you will, along the way. And here is your first seed of all the good things to come. Can you imagine what this would have sounded like on the ears of that first human couple? how good this news would have been. Here's what we learn from this little verse. We learn that God is not done with humanity. He could be. He's not done with humanity. We learn that he's going to be engaged in this conflict that we find ourselves in personally. And we find out that it will all end well. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Oh, it's not good to have your head stomped on. I presume the heel will be on the head. One will be on top of the other. One will be victorious over the other. And thankfully, that's not all we have. We have the rest of our Bible. So what is the necessity of, of the incarnation. Why is it necessary that Jesus came to be a man in order for us to be saved? Why is the incarnation necessary for salvation? That's the question I want to put to you this morning. And that's a question I want to have for for you an answer that is simple and sharp and memorable. And for our answer to this question, we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews. So why don't you go there and turn with me now? You can turn to the very end of the Bible and flip back about five books or so, and you'll find the book of Hebrews. And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. We'll be in chapter two, verses five through 18. Why is the incarnation necessary for salvation? You know, we had those miners who were locked underground after a collapse of the ground on top of them many years ago. And uh, there were some things that were necessary to get them out. It involved some drilling. 
And I don't think there were too many around the world or in the field or under the ground at the time who were worried about the beauty or the elegance of the instrument that would get them out of the ground or even the clothes they might be wearing when they emerged from the ground. It's nice to have a poetic, a beautiful, a storybook even solution to a problem. But remember, this book isn't just about nice spiritual answers for our life in America. This book is about the only answer to our deepest problem, sin and all its effects. And the most important thing about the answer is that it is effective. And what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that the humanity of Jesus was necessary for you to be saved. And that apart from a fully human savior, you cannot be saved. So this sermon this morning should sharpen your confession of Christ. It may bring you to the point of believing in Christ for who he is. Maybe you've accepted him as a good teacher and likely walked the earth. But this morning, if you're to be saved, you must confess that he was indeed a man and he was who he said he is. Thankfully, and because God is just this kind of God, this is more than a an effective answer, but it is poetic and it is beautiful, as you know. Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. We're going to work our way through this passage in four segments for four answers to the question, why is the incarnation necessary for salvation from sin and to God? And the first answer to that question is this. The incarnation is necessary for salvation to fulfill God's intentions for humanity. The incarnation is necessary in order to fulfill God's intentions for humanity. Let's read together. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, there's a reason why we've come to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, and it is because Hebrews chapter 2 is arguing that Jesus is necessary for salvation, and he's the only way by which we can be saved. But Hebrews 2 is arguing specifically that Jesus had to be a man. He had to be human. And that's why we see several phrases in here across this segment. So in verse nine here, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for for everyone. We have a so that. We see God's intentions in Jesus becoming a man. Even in verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. In verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that 
he might become a merciful high priest. This whole passage into which we've just started now is about the incarnation, the humanity of Jesus, and how it's necessary. And the first thing we're suggesting here from the text is that it was necessary to fulfill God's intentions for humanity. Well, what were God's intentions for humanity? We've meditated on those in brief already, and we see them right here. The writer says, it's been testified somewhere. He's talking about Psalm chapter 8. In Israel's prayer book in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 8 is a praise to God for his creation of humankind and a meditation on God's creation story even of making us in his image. And it interprets all that that means. And what does it mean that he made us in his image? Well, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower for a little while, lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We know a few things about God's intention for us, his caring and loving intention, namely that we were intended for glory and for honor You, friend, are made in the image of God. He made everything else and he made you special. He made humans special. And that extends to every human from conception to death. And that includes you. No matter what you've done this past week, you are made in the image of God. It also means that God has intended for us dominion. It says that he's put everything in subjection under his feet, humanity's feet. At the creation, he gave the world to us. Did you know that? He gave the birds to us, the fish to us. He gave the whole world to us. We're God's vice regents, his representatives on earth, his little kings, ordering and leading and caring for and enjoying and ruling over the whole world. That was his plan. Well, how's it going? How's it going? Meh. I mean, what do we say? Not very well. Not very well. We still have the glory and honor and dignity that comes being made in God's image, but, but we do not have dominion over this earth and we don't have to ponder this matter for long. We can think of things outside of us like, oh, for example, the weather. The best we can do from the weather is get out of the way. A virus much smaller than a tornado or a tsunami comes along And I mean, there's arguments about what's best to do, but at least half the world has shut things down completely. And for as much as we love each other, we've been keeping our distance in ways that feel profoundly unnatural. We can hardly get away from that little thing. And we can't. We've got to have a vaccine soon enough for it. And thank God for, for that. In any case, things outside us can get inside us and kill us. That doesn't sound like dominion. And then how about things that are just inside us? How about us? We don't even have subjection over our own passions and desires and thoughts. We would describe even our thought life as a form of slavery. We're enslaved, addicted is maybe the more popular language out there for the things we get so used to thinking we can't not think them about that person, that desire, that ambition. 
And so many of the things we think and desire and long for lead to the things that we do when we hurt one another, we harm one another, we destroy one another. No, we do not have dominion over the things outside us, the world God made us and gave to us, and we don't have dominion over ourselves, not by a long shot. And that's why we read this. The author isn't missing this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay, we can agree with that. And then we have this beautiful word, but we see him. Wait, now who's he talking about? Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so friends, you and I need a human to come in order to fulfill God's intentions for humanity. God hasn't turned away from his commitment to humanity and his desires for this human project when he created us in his image. He's committed to it. And the way to redeem it, to restore it, to fulfill those intentions is going to require that the Son of God from all eternity become a little lower than the angels for a time, crowned with glory and honor to become a man and to suffer and to die and to taste death for everybody. We need a human, in other words, a Savior who is a human, who is crowned with glory and honor, a Savior who is human, who can redeem us to glory because he has taken from us our guilt and the grave. And we need a human who is himself filled with grace and filled with truth. I love that here. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Any, everyone. You might be here this morning and I'm going to preach about the cross and about forgiveness and some other things along the way. And if you feel like you're unworthy of this, then you're absolutely right. So I'll grant that to you. And so is everyone else around you and so am I. Anything we leave with this morning from God that is of any comfort to us and is any good for us comes to us by his grace, which is to say we don't deserve it. So if you don't feel like you deserve what the Bible promises you can have in Jesus, I agree with you and so does God. But by his grace, he freely gives it to you because of Jesus who became a human in order to fulfill God's intentions for humanity. Isn't it good news that this human project isn't a lost cause? Well, there's a second reason why the incarnation, the humanity of our Savior was necessary. And it's in order to create a new human family. In order that God would create for himself a new human family. And for us. When that psalmist in Psalm 8 was reflecting on God's mindfulness of humanity, he, he didn't say, who am I? He didn't say, who was Adam, the man? He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man? What is humankind? Who are we that you are mindful of us? And then, of course, he confesses what he knows is true. 
Well, God has more in mind in creating humanity and in sending his human son, son as a human, than to redeem humans, but to redeem a people to make for himself a new humanity, as we've prayed in song. Consider with me verses 10 through 13 and listen out for the family language that we cannot miss here. For it was fitting, necessary, that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. God intended for humanity to be a human family. And as we look around the world, how is that going for us? How's the human family doing? How are, how's, how's dinner at the, the human family dinner table? How are the discussions going? How are we getting along exactly? Meh. Understatement. Not very well. And lots of people are trying. Lots of people are trying from all kinds of good motives. Lots of people are trying from all kinds of sinister motives. And all of us are trying from plenty of mixed motives. That's not going very well. And it's actually going about as well as it's ever gone. It really is. This is the time to be alive, folks. And yet, come on. There has got to be more that God had in mind than how things are going between us as humans today. Well, this passage that we've just read is an encouragement to us. We have the language of sons and brothers and children here, and I want to put your attention on that, that part of God's intention and part of the necessity involved in sending the son as a a human is to create a new, a new human family, not merely to help the human family out that we've got. So let's ponder each of those terms. What kind of human family are we talking about? Well, he says here, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation. In bringing many sons to glory. In this new human family, there are many sons who are brought to glory. Now, when you hear that, and it's familiar from the song we sang before the sermon, you're probably thinking, bringing many sons which you should understand is shorthand for sons and daughters, although there's an important significance to the language of sons. You should hear that and likely think of heaven, and there wouldn't be nothing to that. But that is not the accent in this passage. In bringing many sons to glory. Well, do you remember what the psalmist in Psalm 8, whom this author just quoted, do you remember what he said as he was pondering God's creation of humankind in his image? Remember how he said, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. No, this human family made of sons who are brought to glory 
are sons and daughters who are brought into the fullness of their humanity, into all that God intended for us. And if you're in Christ this morning, it means that you have brought, been brought into your glory, into the glory that God intended for you as a human. And that will only grow as time goes on and exponentially when we see the face of Jesus, yes, in heaven, when we're brought to glory, if you will. But I want to point you to the more deep and immediate meaning of that language of glory there. And it is all that God intended for humanity and for you and for us as a family. We are sons of the Father in the Son who has come to us from the Father. And there would be no salvation. There's no sonship, no relationship with the Father for any of us in this family apart from the Son who has come to us from the Father. I want to look with you for a few moments at a passage in Galatians. You don't need to turn there, but you're welcome to if you like. Galatians chapter 4. Once you start to see it, you can't unsee this imagery of sons to a father in the Bible. And in Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that needs to be reminded of how it is exactly they come into a relationship with God as a son to a father. And he writes this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, he's talking about the period before Christ, and now When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we see here this famous passage that That comes to mind even during the holidays in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come. And that's right. It really should. When When it was time for God to send his son into the world. When the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. Now what does that mean? Born of a woman. We often think born of Mary. And it's true. Mary was a woman and he was born of Mary. We might think of the virgin birth. And that's an important doctrine taught by the scripture. We understand that by being born of a woman and not conceived by a man, that he does not inherit Adam's guilt. There's theological reflection to be done there. But in this particular passage, that he is sent forth and born of a woman does not refer to Mary or to the virgin birth. It refers to the fact that he's a human The Savior is a human. He was born of a woman. Do you see? Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 2. It was fitting that he, by whom and for whom all things exist, 
in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. The son of God, when he comes, doesn't just suffer at the end of his life on the cross or in his passion leading up to the cross. His whole life is a life of righteousness and of obedience and his whole life is his suffering. Jesus had to come to suffer in order that God might create a new human family and bring many sons to glory. Well, these sons are more than sons, but are together, the second image, brothers. It says, he was not ashamed to call them brothers. He was not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. In the ancient world, the eldest brother may have the entire share of the inheritance. You can imagine how older and younger brother relationships might go. I mean, think of how they go today. Uh, I had an older brother, my brother Tyler, my sweet older brother Tyler, who was handicapped, was no trouble at all. But I was the functional older brother for my younger brother. And I can't promise that I was no trouble at all. With all my capacity, I believe there were times when I gave my brother trouble and there are memorable stories that we tell one another. And he wasn't without fault. But I was the older brother. In any case, Jesus is a really good older brother. He's a great older brother. And his inheritance he gives to us. He's our elder brother. And that's important language. We today are brothers and sister and family, not only because we are sons of the Father through the Son sent from the Father, but because we're younger brothers to Jesus. We're family, in other words. And children is this last word that's used here. Behold, I and the children that I've given me, he's quoting from the Old Testament and drawing a little theology of the people that God would, that God would make. And look at here we are. We might hear sometimes spoken of the children of God. We're all children of God. And in, in a sense, every human person is a child of God and that they're made in God's image. But that's not actually technically the way children of God is used in the New Testament and the Bible. We're children of God by virtue of our relationship to God as sons and our relationship to Jesus as brothers. We get to be family. And we get each other and praise God for that. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. What does it mean that he was made perfect? Oh, there's been no shortage of, of, of suggestions as to what that means. May I suggest what I think it means? And this is just a school of thought, but this comes the closest to all that the Bible says about Jesus. I think that it means that in his office of high priest, in his office as savior, in his role as savior, he had to suffer in order to be our savior. In other words, it was necessary he would be an imperfect and an ineffective savior if he wasn't human and if he didn't suffer. But you and I need a human savior to suffer for us in order to be a perfect savior for us. And Jesus came as a man and he suffered perfectly 
And if your trust in is him, is in him, then you are saved from your sins. He is the founder of our salvation. And he was made perfect through his suffering. He's a perfect savior. Get this. As merely God, as merely the eternal son, he was not a perfect savior and couldn't be for us. Because we needed one to take our place and to represent us as man. And Jesus has done just that for you and for me. So that's another reason why we need the doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, here's another reason. Jesus came as a man to destroy the enemies of humanity, to destroy the enemies of humanity. Verses 14 through 16, what are those? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, what are our two great enemies? Well, death is a great enemy. And what can we say about death? Well, it's a fearful thing. You don't have to be alive very long to meet people who have almost died in all kinds of crazy ways. You don't have to be alive too long to lose a loved one. There are reminders of death all around us. And death is a terribly sad thing. And it's tragic. It is a fearful thing. Sometimes we ignore it and we turn our attention from it. Maybe with the TV, with the internet, with work or a thousand other things. With the gifts that God gives us, we can distract ourselves from the reality of our impending death. Or maybe we stare it in the face, but then we lie about it. It's natural. It's, it's a part of life. And I know what that means. But you can't write it off as merely a, a part of life, the ending of it. And it is not natural in God's plan for humans to die. Better just to call it what it is, a terrible terrible thing. And it's a fearful thing. It's an enslaving thing. Well, that's what he says here. We were enslaved through a fear of death, subject to lifelong slavery in verse 15. Well, that's rough. Lifelong slavery from the beginning of life to the end. Slavery to the fear of death. Do you know slavery to the fear of death? We shouldn't be eager to die in the wrong way. It is gain to die if we're in Christ. But death is a wicked, evil thing, and we should hate it. Death is also a powerful thing. Satan, the devil, has the power of death. And the devil himself is that second enemy. We've said death is an enemy, the devil is an enemy. He's a personal enemy. The scripture teaches that he is not just an idea or a force, but he is personal. He has personal desires for you to die and to be separated from God and to be condemned and to sin right now, tomorrow, until you're dead. And he is cruel and he wants the worst for you and he hates you. 
two great enemies, death and the devil. And what you and I need, apparently, is a human that can deal with the two of them. In fact, there are two things that Jesus has said to do for us here. He has said to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus comes in his humanity in order to destroy death and the devil and to, second, deliver. He comes to deliver. Verse 15, all those who through fear of death were, were subject to lifelong slavery. And so here's the good news. You don't have to be afraid of death. Jesus came as a human in order that you would not be afraid of death, in order that you would not be subject to the personal cruel assault of the devil who holds death over you as a certain threat apart from Jesus. Jesus saves you from that. And that's good news this morning. And we need a human to do it. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to hear a few of these words. You'll recognize some of this language. Speaking of the victory of Jesus over sin and death. We've spoken of the mystery this morning. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's deliverance from the fear of death through Jesus And though you may die, yet you will live, for he is himself the resurrection and the life. And you will be raised imperishable. You can take that to the bank, as sure as God's word is true. Or what are we even doing here? Well, we need a human if that's going to be true. We need Jesus to be a human in order to destroy the enemies of humanity, death and death. The devil. There's a final reason why we need the incarnation and the humanity of our, our great Savior, and that is to help us with our greatest human problem. To help us with our greatest human problem. Remember, you've got problems that might be nested within other problems and nested within other problems. And the devil's a real problem, and death's a real problem. But the problem underneath those problems, the problem that gave rise, rise to those problems, is the problem of human sin. Sometimes it happens that someone grows up in church and they hear a lot about how Jesus died for sinners and was crucified in the place of sinners. And then one day they hear that there are other things that were going on on the cross. Like, for example, Jesus' victory over the devil. And then they start to see, and maybe you've started to see this victory theme all over the Bible and all over the New Testament. And yes, it is there. And sometimes... You may be tempted to let go of maybe the more embarrassing doctrine that Jesus punishes sinners, God punishes sinners, and therefore we need Jesus to take our sin on the cross. 
sideline that in order to celebrate his victory over the devil and over death. Friends, may I suggest to you that there's no victory over the devil and over death or anything if there is not victory over sin and over personal guilt, which is offensive, which is hard to hear, but which is God has gives us ears to hear. So read with me these, these final verses in verse 17 through 18 and ponder how is it possible that this human comes to defeat death and the devil after all. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, incarnation, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What's at the bottom of all of our problems? The bottom of all of our problems is a problem of sin. And Jesus addresses through his humanity, starting with the incarnation leading to his death and resurrection, he addresses the problem of sin, the penalty of sin. See that he's the propitiation here. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus, as a a priest, represents God to us and us to God. And Jesus takes our sin on himself on the cross and he suffers the penalty of our sin. That's what the propitiation means. He propitiates the wrath of God. God has anger and wrath at our sin that is just because of his holiness. How is he going to accept many sons into his presence and make and bring many sons to glory and make us a part of his family and uh, give us a pass on death and shoo the devil away? How's all that going to happen? And why didn't he do it earlier? He does it through his son, who as a human goes before us and represents us and suffers for our sins to take the wrath of God away. And when the wrath of God is diverted and falls on Jesus instead of you and me, guess what? God can give us life and free us from death. And if he can free us from death, then he can free us from the power of the devil over us. It all goes back to the problem of the Bible at the heart of the Bible, which is the problem at the heart of your own life, which is the problem of sin. And it's a problem that God has a perfect solution for, a perfect savior for, a savior who was himself, a perfect human, the Lord Jesus. He deals with the penalty of sin. Would you trust him today? He also deals with the power of sin. Did you catch that in verse 18? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I put the word help in this point. To help us. It doesn't mean pick up where we leave off and do the rest. But isn't it a good word? A personal word? He helps us. He helps us through his death, but he helps us also as a merciful and faithful high priest. You know, in our own church, we have some of you who have suffered in very acute ways, in very even unique ways, and sometimes we might send someone to you. Isn't it helpful to have a counselor who's been through some things, been through the things that you're going through? We don't need that in all the counsel that we get, but that's a part of God's plan for the church. And you can serve others by counseling them from your own experience. Well, did you know that Jesus has the experience of full humanity? He was made like us in every respect. 
every respect. And he himself has suffered when tempted. And that because he suffered when tempted, he's able to help you and me right now when you and I are tempted to sin. And you might say, well, that's not really fair because he was God and he didn't sin. Well, there's another way to come at that. And that is that the Lord Jesus bore up under the full weight of sin all the way to the end and experienced it in its weight and its trauma and its trouble to an extent that you have no idea how kind is he having suffered so much under so much temptation to sympathize with us, but he is pleased to do that. So Jesus, the God the Son incarnate, God the second person of the Trinity, enfleshed, having become man, and made perfect to save us through his suffering, has taken all of our sins away. And he even sympathizes with you and me today, brothers that we are of his, sons of his father with him. He sympathizes with us in our temptation and he's also able to help us. So my prayer for you this morning is that you have become more convinced, not just that Jesus was human, but that he had to be human and that apart from his perfect humanity, there's no hope for you or for me. Praise God that he sent his son into the world to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised so that we could pray now and so that we can sing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who became man, who lived and died and was raised and who's ascended to your right hand and is, is a man even now, though glorified, mysterious as that is, it is true. And Father, we give you praise this morning as our Father and we give praise to the Son and we give praise to the Spirit. And we thank you for the incarnation and your kindness to send Jesus and your grace to send Jesus and for the strength that Jesus had to bear up under temptation that he might propitiate your wrath for us and that he might have mercy on us as a faithful high priest. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.